The First World War cast a giant shadow over the entire 20th century, and the terribly unjust settlement at Versailles made things infinitely worse. A new book says there could have been peace two years earlier, a better peace. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. You just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When American diplomat and historian George Kennan looked at the causes of the wars, revolutions, genocide, civil strife, arms races, and failed diplomacy of the entire 20th century, he declared that all lines of inquiry into each of these events lead back to the First World War. What was then called the Great War started with a trigger in 1914 that all the empires were waiting for and came to an official end in 1918. But in a great many ways, it never really ended. The shadow it cast continues. Here we are in 2021, and a price is still being paid in many areas, the most obvious being the ever-volatile former Ottoman Empire, the Middle East. The fact that President Biden's recognition of the genocide of some million and a half Armenians in 1915 remains so highly charged today is another example of the continuing reverberations of that industrialized slaughter of untold millions. As Harry Patch, the last British World War I veteran to die, said of the Great War, it wasn't worth a single life. More important than asking why did it happen is, could the killing machine have ended sooner? The unequivocal and to me shocking answer, which we'll talk about today, is yes, it could have. Now, there are probably thousands of books on the First World War, and I've read a score or so. Among the most important new books is one that reveals that, as the German ambassador to the U.S. said, in 1916, peace was on the floor waiting to be picked up, but tragically it was not. The reason there are so many books is that there are so many great mysteries embedded in the story of the war. Perhaps the greatest mystery is that it simply never should have lasted as long as it did or caused so much devastation year after year after year. I'm honored to have with us today Philip Zellico, author of a truly important new book about what he calls The Lost Peace, the title of which is The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Mr. Zellico. Glad to be with you. Philip Zellico is the White Burkett Miller Professor of History and J. Wilson Newman Professor of Governance at the Miller Center of Public Affairs 
which are both at the University of Virginia, a former career diplomat. He served as executive director of the 9-11 Commission. He worked on international policy in each of the five administrations from Reagan through Obama. Well, again, thanks for being with us. How did you come to write this book? There are so many on the Great War. As I said, the subtitle of your book is The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-17. How is it that this astounding and apparently secret story had not been told? Well, the the great reason it hadn't been told is because no one knew it had happened. Um, The public story of how Amer- of, uh, how the war widened in 1917 instead of ending is that Germany expanded the U-boat war at, at the end of January 1917, um, crossing a line that Woodrow Wilson, the American president, had drawn the year before. And that because Germany widened the U-boat war, America reluctantly uh, joined the conflict and and thereby widened the war, even as Russia was descending into revolution. The true story and the secret story that lies underneath the U-boat war story is that Germany went ahead with the U-boat war because its peace talks had failed. Uh Peace talks that had been going on for five months that between Germany and the United States and also involving the British Empire and Therefore, the reason that the war widened was because it did not end. It did not end because the peace talks failed. But the peace talks were completely secret at the time. After the war was over, uh, the victors had no interest in publicizing these peace talks or calling attention to why they had failed. Because, in fact, the Germans had been the ones who initiated the talks. And the Germans had indicated right away that they were prepared to restore Belgium, which was the great issue to the British and American publics. In fact, the Germans put that on the table without even being asked, just to show their good faith in a compromised peace. Um, And the the irony of it is actually um, that Wilson really wanted to uh, mediate a compromised peace and so the whole tangled story is why then uh, didn't get the, didn't then this get pulled off? So instead of the war ending, it widened and continued, um, plunging uh, within the Russian Revolution and the Bolshevik coup to follow, and plunging so much of Europe into unimaginable misery for years to come. And this is so against conventional wisdom, and I have to put that in quotes. People, most people uh, who look at the Great War think, oh my goodness, the, the, we had to fight the war. The war had to be fought to get Belgium back, uh, that the Germans yeah. would never give that up. Who, and the decision-making to send young men to war was made by very few men in the belligerent countries, of which there were many. Where was the real locus of political power and decision-making in 1916. Was it strictly in the hands of Kaiser Wilhelm II? Talk about some of the characters or people involved there. Again, it was in the hands of uh, very few people. In a way, the the inspiring part of the story is um, the story shows that a lot of people, a, a, a lot of the leaders of the warring powers weren't that stupid. 
the image we have is uh, basically of heroes led by donkeys. Uh, of the all these the valiant soldiers charging to their deaths in the trenches led by these benighted anachronistic leaders who keep blundering forward in fact halfway through the war it's in a way it's reassuring that a lot of the leaders in germany in britain even in france as well and austria hungary all realized that there was no good military way out of the war Mm. and that they really needed to find a way to end it. In other words, it's kind of reassuring to find that the leaders wanted to end the war. Um, So uh, who are these leaders? Your question, who are these people in Germany above all? This is the chancellor, um, a civilian named Theobald von Bettmann-Holweg. Yes. Bettmann-Holweg, or just Bettmann for short, who had been the chancellor of Germany since 1909, and who himself, by the way, bore a measure of the responsibility for the outbreak of war in 1914, Hmm. uh, something which uh, nagged at him constantly, a war, by the way, that had taken the life of his own son later in 1914. Uh, Meanwhile, um, in Britain, you've got the prime minister, uh, Asquith, uh, his foreign secretary, Edward Gray, uh, Asquith would himself lose his eldest son in the midst of these peace talks in the fall of 1916. Mm. Uh, so the war, this, this was very up close and personal to these men. You have Asquith, Gray, you have the uh, extremely capable, ambitious and unscrupulous politician, David Lloyd George, mm-hmm. who was the war minister in Asquith's government, but who wanted to be more. You had in France, there's the French president, Raymond Poincaré, who himself had also been part of those fateful decisions in 1914, but who very secretly confided that the war now needed to be brought to an end. In the United States, the decisions are overwhelmingly being made really by uh, two men, uh, President Woodrow Wilson and his uh, private advisor, uh, an expatriate Texan living in New York City named Edward House. Yes. Edward House. So he will be a name that keeps coming up here. And and Bettman also is very, very important here. And it's I know it's hard to believe that any politician would be self-serving, perish the thought. But apparently that was the case. And for my generation, and I am a boomer, I, I have no question that the American war in Vietnam could have ended much sooner. And I can't help but think that President Johnson... In fact, we know now he wanted to end the war, but, and and that's why he didn't run again for re-election in 1968. President Johnson said he did not want to be the first president to lose a war. Saving his face meant losing untold hundreds of thousands of lives, quite needlessly. And I, I wonder if you could talk about this political hurdle during the Great War, I mean, once, you know, once they were committed to winning, and I can't imagine the prospect of going before their suffering people and ending the war without a heroic conclusion would hardly, was hardly what any national leader wanted to do. How about this political hurdle uh, during the Great War uh, and the unique position our American president, Woodrow Wilson, was in right. regarding face-saving? Right. And that, that's a brilliant question, Bert. And 
Thank you. Uh, the German the German Chancellor Bettmann was the one who finally broke the logjam by asking the Americans to mediate peace on a compromise basis. And he did that in August of 1916 at about the halfway point of the war, two years in. Now, Bettmann had actually worked through just the political question you ask. How would he explain this to the people? Not only had Bettmann worked out the story, he had rehearsed the story with key political allies in Germany, with his uh, Austro-Hungarian ally in Vienna. And they had the story pretty well down. And the story was this. The story was, we went to war for self-defense. We went to war because um, all these countries encircling us ambushed us with this assassination of the Austrian heir in the Balkans. They entrapped us into a war. They then invaded us. And actually, Russia had invaded both German and Austrian territory at the outset of the war. And they ganged up on us to destroy us. We successfully defended ourselves and defeated the invaders. And now we can make peace having protected ourselves from this aggression. Now, that was the, that's oh. not a perfect heroic story, but that, that is, uh, for most of the German people, that story would make a lot of sense because mostly the Germans thought they were fighting in self-defense, yes. not for annexations. Right. And by the way, the British had a similar self-defense story. The French had a self-defense story. So in every story, the face-saving way out of the war, the story that matched the story they were telling to their own people was a story about how they were fighting the war and fought the war successfully for self-defense. Yes, self-defense, of course. We didn't start it. We're the, we're the innocent, uh, aggrieved victim. And as you talk, right. I'm reminded of uh, Nixon, you know, the the anti-war movement here uh, was building and building and building, and it was a majority by the time, uh, 72 or so. And so he came up with the phrase, peace with honor. You know, you couldn't have any kind of dishonor. And honor and glory. <laughs> One of the monuments I saw, Chateau Thierry in France, uh, big letters, glory. You know, and if people are committed to that and how could they be let down by anything less than, you know, victory? I just, a very, very difficult uh, needle to thread for, for politicians. It is, but in a way you have to admire the fact those politicians who are willing to step up to that and who are willing to uh, just stand up and look in the mirror and say, you know what, we are going to have to end this. Right. It's better to end it in a face-saving way than to continue the slaughter. And the good news, in a way, is that leading politicians in Britain and in Germany and in France all came to that recognition. They all understood, by the way, that that meant a, a compromise peace in which every country could claim to have defended itself against aggression. Mm-hmm. That would have basically brought Europe pretty much back to the borders of 1914, right. probably with the creation of an independent Polish state mm-hmm. out of the Russian Empire, probably with some rights of Russia into the Mediterranean through the Dardanelles Straits. Uh, this was that vision was there, and the Germans made it clear that they were prepared to negotiate in that way by, as I said at the start, putting a willingness to restore Belgium 
on the table right at the outset of their request for American mediation. So your point earlier was the role of the Americans in all of this. Yes. To propose such a face-saving way out is very difficult for the Germans to propose that directly to the British and French because it would make it look like they were weak and trying to get out of the war and it would embolden the British and French and vice versa. There was a crucial role then for the mediator to play in proposing the conference to which everyone would, with feigning reluctance, agree to come. A conference, though, he knew the Germans had already secretly asked him to call. And at that conference, the American president could be the person who could help suggest this compromise approach that would end the war in these terms. He would have known that the Germans were prepared to make some of the compromises on their end. And on the Allied side, the the Americans had already the leverage to bring the war to an end because the great secret, in addition to the peace talks, the other great secret at the time, was that the British were going bankrupt in the dollars to continue the war, and the American president had cut off the funds that would allow them to continue. So the British were going to be forced, whether they wanted it or not, they were going to be forced to start curtailing the war effort in early 1917, and they knew it. And so really all the circumstances were in alignment to bring the war to an end. Absolutely amazing, and and uh, you know, of all the books I've read about the uh, the Great War, so much, so much of this is just shocking and hadn't been known before. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Here we are in 2021, and we're talking about the Great War, World War One, that could have ended sooner, and I. It, it, it's amazing how the, the ripple effects that it's had ever since then. Our guest today is uh, author Philip Zelico, uh, author of the important new book, The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War. And you mentioned uh, the uh, money situation for what used to be Great Britain. Uh, it, it, your book reveals a secret I had never known, that England was on the precipice of bankruptcy which had major implications for continuance of the war. The government... Right, because they were financing the allies. Yeah, and first there was Asquith, and then David Lloyd George. Tell us, please, about the decision by J.P. Morgan, what that was like and what its effects were. Yeah, the uh, um, what was happening was that the British increasingly were relying... Uh, were, they were relying on... Um, staggering loans from the United States. These loans were secured by collateral. That's literally gold bullion or negotiable securities physically deposited in New York banks in order to secure the loans. Um, That collateral was simply running out by the end of 1916. There was just the British gold reserves were running dry and and the available liquid negotiable securities were running out. Mm. So the um, the British financial partner in New York uh, was J.P. Morgan and Company, right. uh, then led by Jack Morgan. Uh, Morgan came up with a scheme for trying to float a series of short-term unsecured loans that would tide the British through at least for another six months or so. Morgan uh, floated that scheme in November 1916, and very secretly 
Woodrow Wilson killed it. He killed it in secret meetings and letters he wrote with the Federal Reserve Board that then produced a warning from the Federal Reserve Board against making any such loans, and it killed the Morgan loan scheme. By doing that, it effectively cut off the indefinite flow of funds to the Allied side and meant that the British were not going to be able to continue financing the war very much longer. Wilson did this in November 1916 in order to give himself the leverage to conclude the peace talks and bring the war to an end. Um, to Wilson's credit, Wilson wanted to mediate the end of the war. Yes. He recognized the significance of the German offer. He knew he had the financial leverage over the Allied side and was clearly, as in this example, starting to use it in November 1916. And, uh, of course, then... Uh, the, the, latter, the latter part of the book, as you know, is a story that is stranger than fiction of how these efforts failed. It's, um, it's uh, piecing this together was itself a detective effort because this, it's a situation where Wilson himself is actually trying in his way. But the problem for Wilson is that he just did not know what to do. He did not know how right. to organize a peace conference. And he began going about doing it in ways that actually made things worse. Absolutely amazing. And today, you know, I mean, we have international diplomacy. Uh, the American State Department today is a big, highly skilled and experienced uh, avenue for international diplomacy. It's a big bureaucracy. <laughs> uh, On its good days. <laughs> Well, it's been cut off before. My goodness, we had uh, yes. uh, Secretary of State Rogers under Nixon, who had no power. It was all given to his president's special friend, Henry Kissinger. Uh, and tell us, please, about uh, the relative powers of Secretary of State Robert Lansing as compared with President Wilson's special friend, Edward House, and what that did with regard to being even able to exercise diplomacy. Yes. Now, Lansing himself was no veteran diplomat. Lansing was um, uh, had worked in New York City as an international lawyer, um, but he was not uh, he was not someone who really knew how to handle international diplomacy on a big stage. And he very much uh, viewed his job as a nine to five matter of bringing in papers and analog and sending them along. And Wilson regarded Lansing as little more than a clerk. Right. Uh, Wilson regarded uh, the calibration of the American position on these great matters as his personal responsibility. And the only sounding board he had, other than his wife, uh, he remarried in, at the end of uh, 1915. Uh, his first wife, a very capable woman, by the way, who'd been key to his success, had died after Wilson became president. Wilson remarried in 1915. So other than his w wife, Wilson's only sounding board, really, was his friend, Edward House. Uh, House is a peculiar figure, and I was always fascinated historians. He, uh, this expatriate Texan living in New York City, um, not an employee of the government at all, a private citizen living in New York, but he was a... Uh, a longtime player in Democratic Party politics and patronage and 
and the workings of party patronage was a big deal in the, yeah. then and now, but even more then. Um, and he had would do his grand tours in Europe every year and presented himself as an expert on the courts of Europe. And Wilson would seek his advice on how to handle these European affairs, in addition to talking about Democratic Party politics and people. And House had become Wilson's great friend. They'd, uh, they'd become friends in 1911 and 1912. And uh, throughout Wilson's first term, House increasingly was the man Wilson turned to for personal advice. Um, not on most policy matters, but on this particular business of the diplomacy and the war and what to do with London. And this was, um, as the book details, because we... We now have complete access to House's diaries, oh. which are extremely detailed and inadvertently terribly revealing, yep. um, which he kept meticulously every day. Wow. And in these diaries, uh, you have a House as a really a, a, an amateur and a dilettante who himself has no particular idea as to how to orchestrate a peace move either. Um, and so Wilson is turning to him for advice, and House has completely misread the situation in London, uh, relying above all on trying to get guidance and support from the British politician whom he admired more than any other, which was David Lloyd George. And Lloyd George had decided for his personal reasons that having told House that he wanted Wilson to mediate peace, and encouraged House to do that, he had then, in September 1916, done a 180 and denounced a Wilson-mediated peace. He did this, though, in part for domestic political reasons, uh -huh. because he was trying to force the issue of whether he or Asquith would continue, would run the British government in wartime, and created a pitched cabinet battle that resulted in the downfall of Asquith and the rise of Lloyd George to the prime ministership. But in all this, House is trying to take his lead from Lloyd George, who had wanted Wilson to mediate an end of the war, and then all of a sudden doesn't want him to do it. And then House doesn't know what to do. Wilson doesn't know what to do, except he knows he's trying to bring an end to the war, but he doesn't know how to stage the peace conference. And they both start getting advice on how to do this, but since kind of they're both at sea as to what to do, they start getting advice from the German ambassador in Washington mm -hmm. and from a British intelligence agent in Washington, an army captain named William Wiseman. Um, and the, the who actually in their way are trying to give Wilson and House reasonably good advice, which they are only slowly figuring out how to follow at the time it all starts falling apart on them. Just incredible story. And of course, the hundreds of thousands of, of men in the trenches dealing with lice and rats and, you know, yes. Bombs. And there's some stuff in the book that gives you a sense for their world that puts you. I actually use Asquith's son, um, Raymond uh -huh. Asquith, a little bit in the book, as you know, to give people a feel for the life in the trenches. And of course, the soldiers keep expecting the politicians to make peace at any moment because they can't believe that the war is going to just continue. Um, and some of the politicians were really trying to do it. Mm. And the, the British 
Foreign Secretary Edward Gray had in mind yes. o- only two objectives for peace, German evacuation from Belgium and the preservation of France. And Chancellor Bettmann was willing to do that. Germany didn't, exactly. didn't need to be crushed, although I, I get the sense that a, a British public opinion you know, didn't know that and thought that they had to be crushed. But Gray could see that if Germany were crushed, that would not be a durable peace, as we now know so well. Because, after you know, Versailles just destroyed Germany, and they were not real pleased. And uh, we know what happened after that. The war, uh, they, after a long weekend, as my old professor used to say, they went back at it with, with vengeance. Um, it seems the conservatives in Britain were far more aggressive in their goals. What was their influence? And where, where did David Lloyd George come down on a peace conference? What if Lloyd George went to the British people in 1916 and 17 and said, Belgium is restored? They, they yes, were, and he could have. Talk about I road think actually, less travel, yeah. Yeah, he was fingering that, what I call the peace parachute. Um, he had used the fact that he would be the superior war leader as his way of deposing Asquith and making himself prime minister. Oh, great. So he then had his notion as to how he might um, reinvent the war strategy to, to make it work. He had actually privately been one of those saying that Britain was on the road to lose the war. Hmm. Um, so the, his public position of I'm Mr. Fight to the finish was completely belied by what he was saying in private, which is that we have no plan that can possibly win the war. So he he becomes prime minister. Yes. He's going to try to change the plan in order to rely on new offensives that will happen in the East, in Italy and in the Balkans, which turn out to be fanciful ideas that get shot down in about seven weeks. And by the, about the same time that Britain was going to run out of money anyway to be able to continue on the same scale. But um, so... He's trying his gambit, which is going to fail by the spring of 1917. And so he puts off using the American peace option, but he's keeping that peace option ready to go in case his gambit fails. But meanwhile, Wilson blows the whole thing. Wilson flounders his peacemaking chance, uh, convinces a lot of the Germans that actually he's not going to help them at all, which then emboldens the German high command to demand that instead they try to expand the U-boat war, since Wilson clearly is not going to come through for them on the peace talks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was wondering how it went from, I mean, President Wilson in 1916 won re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Before the war... Yes, and and he meant it. He He was sincere about that. He tried, he didn't... This is, in a way, one of the great lessons of the book is the book is not that, you know, this failed because people just didn't have the right national interests in mind. They didn't, they wanted to end the war. Yes. The problem really was, in Wilson's case in particular, he did not have the operational craft to know how to do it, mm. and he did not understand what he did not know. It's it's actually a testament to the fact that people can be brilliant in diagnosing a problem, yet be totally incompetent in knowing how to solve it. And they every and again he got elected 
on that slogan. And he, before the war, there was a large anti-war movement, and they counted on him as one of their own. Uh, and for those who, Rightly. well, he, he was for those to who, to a large extent, there uh, was a there were there was a pacifist movement to Wilson's left, yes, and there was an interventionist movement to Wilson's right, yes, and Wilson was trying to find the middle ground between the two. Good luck in that, uh, and he he just obviously couldn't do it. We're talking on keeping democracy alive with Bert uh, Bert Cohen with Philip Zelico, his new book. Very important new book, if, if anybody's interested at all in the Great War. The book is called The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916-1917. Uh, and we've all heard of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Very odd character. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he was generally, the generally understood picture of an all-powerful militaristic emperor who ran Germany with an iron fist. But from your book, we learn that he was not so all-powerful. There were Prussian militarists on the right, and the far less known Theobald uh, von Bettmann Hallweg, who was in fact chancellor. And we know that the chancellor of Germany during World War II was Adolf Hitler, who was total dictator. What about the decision-making powers in Germany during the Great War and 1916-17? Where did Bettmann uh, fit in? Could he have held sure. off the militarists? He had held them off for the better part of two years. Um, and there's this image people have of the militarists were all powerful in Germany, and that's, that's, just, not, that's just not right. Um, they were powerful. The German government um, had a peculiar system in which you have the Kaiser, who is also the king of the largest German state, Prussia, and the army and navy report directly to the Kaiser, who's the commander in chief. All the civilian half of the government is led by the chancellor, who also uh, uh, reports to the Kaiser, who appoints the chancellor. Then you've got a German parliament that approves budget and so on. The German right-wing parties made up about one-third of the German parliament, the Reichstag. And they, they like the right-wing of the British conservatives, were all had, trying to win the war. Mm -hmm. But actually, some of the German conservatives, the centrists, like some of the British conservatives, wanted to bring the war to an end, as did the German liberals and the British liberals who thought that some way needed to be found to, to bring all the slaughter to an end. The Kaiser himself um, is uh, increasingly is a neurotic, increasingly detached monarch who um, didn't know what to do with all these troubles and who had increasingly moved away from the day-to-day -day operation of the government for years, but um, would uh, emotional and impulsive, Mm -hmm. But during most of this period, the Army and Navy are agitating to widen the war, use the submarine weapon, even if it brings America in. Hmm. Bettmann is always against this. And Bettmann wins that argument again and again and again. Bettmann deposes the, effectively deposes the head of the German Navy, a man named Turpitz. He deposes the head of the German Army, a man named Falkenhayn. He brings in the popular leader of the German army in the East, a man named Hindenburg and his aide Ludendorff, because he thinks with a popular general in charge, it'll be easier for him to make the face safe and peace, which the Kaiser supports. 
The Kaiser wants peace. He wants to bring the war to an end. He thinks that peace will help save his monarchy. He holds to that view against all the military pressure right up until January 1917, when finally he's convinced partly by some feckless things that Wilson did. Uh, he's, he gives up on Wilson, hmm. the Kaiser. Bettmann, did, Bettmann is still trying with Wilson, yes. but the Kaiser gives up on Wilson. And then when the military makes another effort to get him to adopt the submarine war instead, finally the Kaiser at that point gives in. Uh. That's January 1917. Mm. Then here's, here's the uh, kind of in a way the, the, the bizarre final act. The Germans communicate their messages to Wilson. Um, the Kaiser has approved the military's declaration of the expanded U-boat war. That hits Wilson on January 31st, 1917. Same day, same day, Bettmann has persuaded the Kaiser to let him make a last-ditch effort to keep the diplomacy alive. Wilson had told the Germans, well, won't you at least confide in me your peace terms? Bettmann gets permission from the Kaiser to do just that, and he sends Wilson secretly, like, here are the kinds of things we're thinking about for peace, designed to show that they are interested in compromise. Mm. So the message from the Chancellor also hits Wilson, same day, January 31st, 1917. So here's Wilson. He has these two messages, in effect, composed by these two halves of the German government. One of escalation, one holding out the olive branch. Wilson is so, and his and House is so angry about the escalation move mm-hmm. that he doesn't read Detman's message with any care at all. Oh he and he immediately oh. then breaks diplomatic relations with Germany and sends the German ambassador home. But then, because Wilson actually didn't really want to go into the war. He spends the next two months trying to find a way out of it, but he's now sent the German ambassador home. He's broken off diplomatic relations, and now he's left himself with no way out. He's, um, I mean, so really, even at the last hour, um, the olive branch was still there, and partly because of poor advice Wilson was getting, Wilson kind of tossed the olive branch aside and then mm. spent the next two months looking for a way to pick it back up again and couldn't find it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and so many lives and limbs at stake yes. here. Just unbelievable. And then and think in Europe at this point, if the war ends at this point, yeah. of course, things would have been very bad. It's very scarred, a lot of anger. But, but America has not yet sent a single soldier, sailor, or Marine to fight in Europe. We have never done that. At that point in 146 years, America had never sent a soldier to Europe. In the next two years, America would send 2 million of them to Europe, and neither Europe nor the United States would ever be the same. And at this point, Russia has not yet descended into revolution. Right. The communists have not taken over. There has not been a Russian civil war that will take millions more lives from, you know, the center center of Europe all the way to Vladivostok. The Middle East has not disintegrated into violent chaos, Greece, Turkey, the rest. So even as as bad as things had been, if the war is settled at that point after two years, instead of going on, 
world history really unfolds in a very different way. And, and it's that, that incredible crossroads that I'm trying to capture in the book. I borrow the language, the road, not mm-hmm. the road less traveled from the famous Robert Frost poem, which was composed during this war oh my, about a choice between war and peace being made by Robert, by Frost's close friend, the English poet, Edward Thomas. So I'm borrowing that language from the Frost poem out of just the kind of circumstances that had prompted Frost to write it. And I believe there's something in that poem about, and that would have made all the difference. It yes. would have made all the difference. And you think, uh, as as you say, that the choice choices not to end the war are really more interesting than the choices that started it. And the fact that it kept going and the way it sort of ended with with Versailles did so much damage. It could have ended differently. It could have ended differently without, as you say, I mean, the Germans sent Lenin in to make trouble in, in Russia, and it worked. And the, the uh, you know, what came down from Stalinism, I mean, all these things, just little changes here and there could have made all the difference. And some people wonder, well, why talk in history about the what ifs? What's your answer to that? Well, actually, I, I think if you don't do the what ifs, how do you learn? <laughs> if, if the, in other words, if you take the, if you take choices out of history, um, then his, then history is nothing but the inexorable unfolding of what must be. <laughs> and, and then your then the role of any citizen or any person is simply passive to, you know, to observe, um, the only way people can reflect and learn from choices is to reflect on what could have been done instead. If there was only one, if there was no choice to be made, if there was only one path, then uh, everything is predestined. Wow. But of course, that's not the way life really works. So by reflecting back on, uh, and now you can, uh, you can do these exercises badly. You can create what if situations that that aren't true, that aren't plausible. But this is a case where uh, this, these, this peace alternative was huge and visible to people at the time. Yes. This is not a hindsight invention of the historian. You, you can see in the book how, how gripped they are by it, but it's occurring entirely in secret. And for various kind of odd reasons, in fact, the ability to recover the full story and pull together the British, German, American, French aspects of it in one place has not been possible until recent years. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's astonishing that it's taken so long for this full story to come out. Yeah, hmm. I'm glad that I and some other historians have helped uh, dig out the evidence to be able to now tell the tale. Detective work. It must have been fascinating work. And I can't imagine was. discovering this and then, oh, my God, this and then, oh, oh. And, you know, yes. it, 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 it was it, actually came. It's like a detective story. Sure. It started on this um, in the late 2000s with a, another an, uh, older historian who passed away shortly thereafter named Ernest May, a Harvard historian, who actually had been one of the key authors of 
the history of how America got into the First World War that he had written back in 1958, one of really the foundational works on that subject. And he and I both began kind of going back over this in connection with another project, and we found a couple of odd pieces of evidence that uh, puzzled us and didn't make sense. And then we just began polling and polling and the story began to fall out. Ernest passed away a couple of years later. I just kept chipping away at the story, mm. um, lining up the different archives and the sources, German, American, British, others. Um, meanwhile, uh, some really nice scholarship has been done on the British angle that's just coming out. Yeah. Some other good new work on the German side that's also just coming out in German. And But if if you pull the, all of these stories together in one place, you really can assemble the full mosaic and see the full picture. And it is one of the most amazing historical um, discoveries I think I've seen, I've come across in my professional career. I can imagine. And, you know, quite frankly, I only picked up uh, my fascination with the First World War probably about 25 years ago. Uh, and I, I read the uh, the classic book, uh, The Great War and Modern Memory by Paul Fussell, which sure, painted sure. the picture of what uh, just I highly recommend that book as well. And ever since then, the just one mystery leads to another mystery and it goes on and on and on. And the just how it could have been and how it, the, the, as I say, the long shadow of it just continues and um, it's also so interesting because um, people spend a lot of time figuring out how to go to war. Yeah. They don't spend as much time figuring out how to end war. <laughs> I think it would be a good idea for people to spend time studying that too. You think? Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. What a radical idea. <laughs> and so, if, and this is a book that tries to demystify. Yeah. Okay. Here's, here's how you would have gone about doing that on the greatest possible stage in a situation where it was really possible so that ordinary people can go through this as, ah, that's how one might go about doing it. Um, in a way you can, by, by learning, by figuring out what Wilson at the time did not figure out. Mm. I think it helps people think a little bit more about how to defuse conflicts and end them rather than uh, think that they go on forever. There are some reminders of that in America today. I'd say so. And here we are about to exit Afghanistan. And there's a lot of questions there. And I, I yep. hope we can do it well. But I certainly, it, it's, you know, a lot of lives at stake once again. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with uh, author Philip Zelikow about his new book, uh, the Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War, 1916 to 1917. And as I said, you know, I've heard of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, a very bizarre character. I had never heard of Bettmann before that. After reading it, yeah. I'm left with the impression perhaps he was truly a hero. He did not succeed in bringing an end to the war, but he was a hero in the true sense, bucking the tide standing up and fighting for what he knew was right. How has German history treated Bettmann? Is, is he well known now? Or is he treated? No, he is not. Oh, my goodness. He's mainly, uh, Bettmann is largely forgotten. Um, among, among scholars, 
He's Batman doesn't easily fit the uh, hero image. He's uh, a sturdy, careful, somewhat pedantic man, uh, not an ideologue, but uh, a dispassionate civil servant. Uh. Uh, German, the German historians who remember him tend to uh, remember his role in the outbreak of the war in 1914 oh. and blame him for not doing enough to keep the war from breaking out, not doing enough to restrain the Austrians and the oh, militarists yeah. and some of the militarists in Germany. Um, what the book brings out, of course, is that Bettmann partly blamed himself as well. Oh. And that this is, in a way, what helps make him, I think, uh, a, a kind of hero, in many ways, a more admirable kind of hero than charismatic orders like <laughs> David Lloyd George and Woodrow Wilson, a person who, with really steadfast determination, month in, month out, for years, resists the political pressure to widen the war, and in the summer of 1916, shrewdly and with great political skill, fashions a whole approach for how to end it, which he coordinates in his domestic politics at home, coordinates with his allies, lines it all up, including with the Kaiser, and uh, makes the move with Wilson, and it comes so, so close. Um, he's, by the way, matched by some of heroic figures on the British side, people who also saw the need to end the war, who, uh, like uh, Lord Lansdowne, for example, who's a, a leading conservative politician, mm -hmm. uh, 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 an, an elderly, eminent statesman of the Victorian age, had held every high rank. Yet here's Lansdowne, who, by the way, had also lost a son in the war, mm -hmm. who is making the argument with uh, what one British historian calls his usual quiet ruthlessness <laughs> as to why it's time for Britain to cease uh, killing the flower of its youth and spending itself into bankruptcy and bring this war to an end. But that made so much sense. Who's going to do that? <laughs> yeah. What fun is that? So a lot of the difficulty was in the timing of the American election. They, uh, the, the, the warring parties in Europe knew that that was a big factor, that Wilson wasn't going to do anything until he was reelected, which of course he was. So... After the American election, the military in Germany made the decision to go for unrestricted submarine warfare. What? What? And and at that point, I guess I mean it seems they would know that that's going to bring America into the war. What led them to make that decision? And and I can't imagine how Bettmann might have felt about that. Well, Bettmann was opposed. So, I'll um, bet. <laughs> frankly, the. There is there is something in the military. There, there are several things going on here in the German military culture. First is um, uh, a powerful and and destabilizing cultural arrogance in the German military, in a sense that they ought to be in charge of the thing of what to do in the war. There's second is the only way the German military can redeem the war is by winning it. Right. There's no way to win it on the ground. The only way to win it is with some, you know, miracle panacea. And they think the submarine, submarines cutting off Britain from America will do that. By the way, I'm not paying any attention to the fact that that cutoff is going to happen anyway, because Britain is going to run out of money. 
but the, <laughs> the German military don't understand things about money very well. <laughs> they understand their military instruments and they want to rely on the military instruments. <laughs> and then there's also a sense too, in which that, you know, redeems the right wing's political power in German domestic politics. It, uh, and helps to curb some of the democratic tendencies that the army high command and the old aristocracy of East Prussia uh. had been uh, had been worried about for some time. So there's a lot going on here, but Bettmann is fighting them successfully. But to have to fight them to fight them, Bettmann has to say, "I have an alternative. You can't beat something with nothing." Right. The only way the German military says, here's how we are going to end the war. Bettmann says, no, here's how I'm going to end the war. Mm. And his way to end the war is through the peace talks and Wilson. And the Kaiser approves Bettmann's road. He and and so for five months, Bettmann has is empowered to try to get this settled through peace talks with Wilson. It's when they give up on Wilson because of Wilson's maladroit handling of the peace moves mm. that finally the military can win the argument with the Kaiser and carry the day. And as I said, even at the last moment, Bettmann then gets his message in front of Wilson at the same time, the military does the U-boat war and Wilson is angered by one and ignores the other. Oh my goodness. I just, it amazes me how, you know, from this perspective in 2021, how Wilson couldn't figure out, just call a peace conference. Don't put, you know, specific, you know, you have to do this first. You have to just call a damn peace conference. Well, and actually his original draft note to do that had done that. It, it had done exactly that. He, because his advisor house wouldn't agree to help him. Yeah. Wilson drafts the note himself, includes the call for the peace conference, and then... Um, House looks at the draft uh, and persuades Wilson to take that language out. So it seems sort of like one can say uh, House is sort of not a productive uh, factor in this whole trying to end the war thing. Oh, that's very kind. I <laughs> I sometimes think that people who read my, that once if enough people read my book, they'll have to post guards on House's grave. To keep people from digging him up and hanging him in effigy, oh. I think that it's. Uh, uh, no, he he comes out. Uh, uh, I think anyone who reads this book is is yeah. You don't get a favorable to feel that Wilson Wilson that Wilson's reliance on House was incredibly fateful and tragic, and uh, for so many people, and House himself is a mixture of. Uh, superficial cosmopolitanism, but underneath it, um, uh, actually really an amateur who did not know what to do. And I could think of words we can't say on the radio, quite frankly. <laughs> and he was, I believe, trying to kiss up to London society, right? And that was a big factor for him as well. Yes, that was that was a lot of the source of his uh, of his status. Because uh, remember, he's a private citizen; right. he has no government office. So a lot of his whole source of himself, uh, of his sense of himself and his his stature as a statesman rested on how he was received in London. Yeah, incredible. Putting ego in front of all these lives. You share the advice, and I totally agree, that we should borrow the historian's 
microscope. And you write that beyond the tragedy of the missed piece, it's also the story of inspiring possibilities. How so? Yes. Because uh, I think people find it depressing to think that this war is going on and on, and none of the politicians have the wit to try to end it. It's kind of inspiring to learn that actually, you know what? A lot of them did. Yeah. They, and a lot of them did try and tried with, in some cases, a tremendous amount of civic courage and skill, whether it's Bettman or Lansdowne or Gray or others. Um, you see even British parliamentarians writing to Wilson, trying to tell him what to do. Even my portrait of Wilson himself is actually quite complex and that there are aspects of Wilson I think the reader will really admire. And then aspects in that will just make them put their head in their hands. And it's the same person. So, but it, it, it's inspiring to see that people did try, were trying to end the war against these difficult, in these difficult circumstances and how close they came. It's inspiring to think that this could have been done. Um, even as we reckon with the tragedy that it did not happen. We can learn from history. And as people who listen to the show regularly often hear me say, and they're probably tired of hearing me say it, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. <laughs> I highly recommend this book if you're at all interested in the First World War and in, in diplomacy and international. Uh, uh, oh, and it's, besides, it's actually, uh, I, I hope you'll agree, it's actually a, a good read. Oh, when yeah. people hear something is about diplomacy, it kind of makes them <laughs> roll their eyes. I yeah. don't know. It's a heck of a good read. It's a heck of a good read. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Philip Zelico is the author. Oh, you're most welcome, Bert. And the book is The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End the Great War. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Fascinating. Thank you. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, she hasn't been kissed in 40 years, inky dinky parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Our topic in Armitage broke the spell of 40 years, inky dinky parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. You didn't have to know her long to know the reason men go wrong. Inky dinky, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, parlez-vous. She's always working good in town. She makes her living upside down. Inky dinky, parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, Parlez-vous. She sold her kisses for 10 francs each. Soft and juicy as sweet as a peach. Inky dinky, Parlez-vous. Mademoiselle from Armitage, Parlez-vous. Madam, you got a daughter.
soldier's underwear Inky, inky, I didn't care what came of me, so I went and joined the infantry.